Good morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for September 10th, 2017. Koyo Kubose here, so very, very glad you joined us. Well, summer has flown by, Labor Day's already gone by. <clears throat> Cooler weather is coming upon us. And uh, the autumn equinox will be approaching us, you know, in the seasonal calendar, um, days and nights, the length is equal. The climate, the temperature, the weather becomes very temperate, kind of like just right. Um, I suppose we could think about that aspect of day and night uh, becoming equal in length and um, not too hot, not too cold. You know, when we talk about the equinox, okay, spring and autumn. Uh-huh. And usually, <clears throat> this is a time when in Japanese Buddhism, uh, it's sort of like the Christian Lent, where you individuals are encouraged to. Um, kind of hunker down, kind of uh, focus on one's spiritual growth and so forth. And I think a nice, this morning I was thinking about what to say, and I was thinking about this balance, this wholeness, this uh, non-dual, you know, a certain expression of oneness and when you have, on the one hand, and I don't mean to talk bad about engineers and math and so forth, but, you know, engineers are very orderly and things have to be a certain way. Because if you want to make, say, a bridge or a machine or anything that works in the external world, in our environment, then it's, the specs have got to be you know, right on. There's no fudging. There's no wiggle room. Now, the other side of the dimension might be the artist. Very internal. Okay. He's tuned into, to, to some, and I suppose if an engineer and an artist got married, it'd be pretty lively. Uh, But I think when they come together, that might be optimal when um, you have a, what might be called classical. See, on one side you have engineer, we have classical, we have practical, we have the left brain hemisphere. And on the other side, we have the artist, we have the romantic, okay? Usually classical is is paired with the hyphen romantic, okay? And the practical hyphen original, uh, left hyphen right, the right brain hemisphere, the so-called more creative side. They think about in terms of cognitive processing modalities, uh, they say that the right brain hemisphere has it's how it functions is like using adjectives like um, uh, 
simultaneous processing versus on the left brain hemisphere is more sequential processing. Things in the right, so like numbers, words in a sentence, it's got to be right. Okay? Whereas on the right brain hemisphere, the romantic, artistic, creative side, it's like you processing or cognitive function in terms of simultaneous processing means like you look at a picture. You see it all at once. Okay. Um, and this kind of model has been used in many different contexts. But when we think about in the spiritual growth and about oneself, I think we get into trouble when we get caught. We victimize ourselves by identifying too much with one or the other. Uh, some of the dangers might be, well, if you're on the, this is, a, I just had an association sparked off, but Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I think Robert Persig, that was the theme of his book where, you know, he, um, it wasn't about motorcycle maintenance really, but he was trying to combine, I think he used the words in his book, classical and modern romantic were the two sides, the two ways of being, okay? external and in versus internal. Okay? Usually it says versus, but when you put that hyphen there, or even maybe better than a hyphen is a slash, meaning that they're both sides of one whole, okay? not two opposite different things. There's interpenetration between the two. Huh? Non-dualism or oneness, huh? wholeness, <laughs> W-H, you know, not a hole, like a hole in the ground, but the whole thing, the complete package. So I think if you're air and get caught by the, the left brain hemisphere, things should be this way. Okay. Whereas on the right brain hemisphere, the danger is it gets subverted by one's ego. It says, I'm an individual and, I, and whatever I say is, is good for you know, me. Which is true, but you want to say, I'm creative. I'm original. Nobody could judge me. Okay. I'm the best. Um, but when we say the word creative, I always remember it means two things. To be, lead a creative life, to be a creative artist, to be able to be a creative anything. There is originality coming from within. From the individual, but it has to work out in the world. That's the practical side. Huh? So you can't you can't say ah uh, oh, two plus two equals five. Yippee! Well, is it useful? Okay. Don't say is it true or not. Say is it useful or not? Does it work? Does it solve a problem? Can other people use it? Okay. Uh, so when we talk about a great scientist, a great artist, a great anything maybe, they combine both aspects. Huh? You know? So 
Don't get caught by the shoulds and perfection. And don't get caught by too self-centered in a victimization mode. Okay? There's always trade-offs. So I was thinking about this aspect. Okay? When we think about heart and we think about uh, what's the best way for me to live? Hmm? Sometimes the mistake is made when a person is naturally one sort of leans one way and then perhaps a good friend or, or he, he or she reads or, or hears a, a talk that says, hey, too much there is no good, you know. You, then they make the mistake of going to the other side and they become the other way and they're caught by the other opposite end of the dimension. So the teacher says, no, no, A, no, 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 you better, you need some B. So you go to B, and I says, oh, no, no, you need some A. That point, I think, is a key point when uh, it's both A and B, or neither A and B, okay, however you might want to express it. That's life, okay? We don't have to use the word truth or best unless we say everything is best. Truth and reality are synonymous, okay? But too often, true is social, it's political, it's, you know, dogmatic, okay? But what we, what we mean by, I think, when I, anyway, I think in Buddhism, it, we don't need to use the word, ah, this is the truth or the true way or whatever, but it means the real. So sometimes it's said true and real, described that way. Uh, maybe there's only one way for you, for me, you know. Uh, my mother is the best mother in the whole universe. <laughs> that has a particular context in Buddhist context, but anyway, you know, my religion is the best religion in the whole world. Okay, Nothing wrong with that kind of statement if you know where it's coming from, where everybody should feel that way, and you respect that in yourself, then you can respect it in all others. Hey, wow, I'm getting kind of kind of deep. I better stop um, digging a hole. Hey, I just I just thought about something that we're going to put in the new, next newsletter. Okay, I, this is my last thing. When there's a hole in the ground, let's say there's a well, and, and this is in a little article. We're going to put it in the next issue of the bulletin so you're getting a preview. But, and a farmer's donkey fell into this dry well. They said, gee, can we get him out? And they just couldn't get him out. So they said, well, I guess he's done for. We'll have to, we should bury him. Plus, the well is going dry anyway, so we could might as well fill up the well at the same time. So I got some neighbor and they started shoveling the dirt into the well and after a while they heard some noise and they looked down the well and here was this donkey when shovels full of dirt falls on his back he just shook it off and then he stomped it down and he was of course then getting closer and closer to the surface as the hole got filled up and he shake all the dirt off his back and he stepped up then he jumped out of the hole. Okay. So the moral is, you know, when 
problems, difficulties, struggles, you know, fall on our back, shake it off and step up. Um, that kind of uh, using a difficulty as a stepping stone, that kind of an idea where it brings the two opposites together as very practical um, spiritual tool for us. Well, I want to introduce today's guest to give us a Dharma glimpse, Andy Goyo. He's part of the LM4 group. He lives in New Jersey. Uh, so let's hear from Andy Goyo Sensei. Hi, this is Andy Goyo. This is definitely a glimpse without answers. I'm not sure all the questions are good questions. It is important to ask good questions and avoid trying to answer bad questions. For example, did you stop beating your wife, yes or no, is a bad, unanswerable question if you've never beaten your wife. So I hope some of the questions I pose will not be bad ones. I've been thinking a lot recently about time. Why do we attribute sentience to animals and insects, but not plants? We now understand some biological differences in the organization of animals versus plants, but this was relatively recently discovered and thus did not influence discussions about sentience hundreds or thousands of years ago. For me, it seems to be an issue related to time. From our temporal perspective, animals and insects move at relatively the same speed as we do. Yes, some are faster or slower, but those are matters of small degrees of difference. If we watch a snail for a few seconds, it has clearly moved its position. But we can stare at trees, bushes, flowering plants, even fast-growing bamboo and grasses, and never discern movement. Time-lapse photography is a cool trick that brings their movements into our temporal plane, and then we see intentionality in the movements. It is the intentionality that leads us to see an internal agent causing the action, and that is when we ascribe sentience to something. If we continuously saw the actions of plants as contiguous with ours, then we would see them continuously as sentient too. But I wonder what the trees and plants would say about our actions. Buzzing bees flying around aimlessly at amazing speeds? Would a tree that lives hundreds of years feel pity for our short lives? And then think of one type of mayfly. This is a quote I found on Wikipedia. Doliani Americana has the shortest lifespan of any mayfly. The, the adult females of the species live for less than five minutes. Yes, it lived longer in its larval stage. So what does it mean to live a long or full life? Well, it kind of depends on your species. But time influences much more than the attribution of sentience. 
One key, if not the key, to a Buddhist perspective is that all things are impermanent and conditional. It is our ongoing struggle against impermanence that leads to dissatisfaction, misery, anguish, suffering. We want the pleasant to stay and stay, and we want the unpleasant to disappear. It is to the containment rather than elimination forever of reactivity to impermanence to the impermanent nature of everything that Buddha's guidelines, his eight-part path, can lead. What is impermanence other than time? Although time is extremely difficult to define, it is typical that it represents something about the change from A to B, whatever A and B are. A never lasts as A. It always becomes something else. Impermanence is time. Time requires impermanence. And what is the now we seek to address and recognize? We should say we should stay in the moment. The past is gone and the future is yet to be. But how do we know what is now versus past versus future? When younger, all of us manage to do things that seem remarkably dumb later on. I'll own up to one such episode because its effects lasted a long time for me. On the last day of my junior year at college, my roommate and I decided to smoke some hash, which, unknown to me, was laced with an opioid, to which I am allergic. I then had a very bad and scary trip. While parts were merely excessively weird, visual hallucinations, the scary part focused on confusion. I was having trouble distinguishing my memories from my thoughts about the future and realized that if you can't do that, then there really is no now. I was desperately trying to recall particular people, events, etc., at one point, I was talking to a friend and trying to, des- to describe this dilemma, so I thought I'd tell her about something I clearly knew as a memory. I told her earlier that day I had watched a duckling waddle down our dorm floor following a basketball because it had been imprinted on a basketball. This was true. We really had done an imprinting study using a basketball as mom. But the memory struck me as so odd that that I was instantly caught up in, was that a memory or some fanciful thought about the future? And I literally collapsed inert onto the floor. Later, as the drug effects wore off, the sense of dread about not being able to separate, distinguish between the past and future did not leave me for months on end. I had lost connection to the now and felt lost. The other challenging perspective about time relates to humanity's many discussions about God or gods. The entire premise about intelligent design is simply that for many it is inconceivable that mutation plus selection, evolution, has led to the awe-inspiring array of life forms, including humans. For me, The root of the inconceivable quality of thinking about evolution is a lack of acceptance or simple absence of understanding of what deep time really means. 
The latest estimate of the length of time that's elapsed since the Big Bang is 3.8 billion years. If someone hasn't witnessed the evolution of a single species within a single lifetime, how can we imagine what can change over that span of time? It is much easier to imagine that someone, something, designed it. Of course, that begs the question, so who made the designer? How can people accept the absence of God? By recognizing what time truly means. Not only in our everyday actions, but in understanding how this specific body came to be in the here and now. So the weirdest question comes last. Is time God? Is that a picture understanding of God that I can accept? Like I said, lots of questions, far fewer answers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, questions, huh? Very often they're more important than answers. Answers like a period. You know. And I know that my father, I don't know where he might have acquired that particular saying, but he must have not you know, no periods, okay, in Buddhism. Where you make a conclusion as though that's the end of things. And even in science, the more you study something in a special, specializing or deeper into one simple, single thing, it opens up a whole world of questions that we had assumptions that we never looked at before and said, well, well you know, why is this? Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> So in other words, life is a big mystery, and maybe we don't need it to see it as a problem to be solved and searching for answers. How do we live the question? <laughs> this is, these are sort of big things that we have to make small in the sense that we have to personalize it and say, gee, you know, what real and to me, real to me, can I make it so that it's it's helpful? Okay. Well, what is the question? So <clears throat> religion, I think, comes about by ordinary human beings struggling with this. Even though they may not be able to verbalize it or conceptualize that struggle, you know, uh, literature, art, whatever, touches upon these great questions, we might say. And it behooves us to struggle without the necessity of saying, well, I've got, I've got to put a period on it. I've got to figure it out. Then I could live my life so nicely. You know, this is, this is, this is the struggle. Um... And it has to do with time. It has to do with change. It has to do with impermanence. And what does that mean? When something's slow or fast or... Yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> what does it mean when we say, well, it's relative. It all depends. Uh, slow is part of fast. There can't be any fast without slow. You know? 
uh, how do we get our mind around these kind of things? Then present and future and getting confused. Time is something that we could really get hung up on and uh, raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? What does eternal now mean? What does deep time mean? Or or sometimes we we want to always be backing up, sort of. When we see something close up, we say, oh, yeah, slow, fast, right in front of me. I could see it right here. I experienced it in my senses. But if you look, take a step back conceptually, and you get a broader perspective, a more philosophical perspective of whatever, in this case we're talking about time, we say, oh, well, we look at it like this. And as soon as we do that, we still should be moving backwards more in terms of getting a wider view. You don't stop. You don't say, oh, okay, and put a period on it. This is very insidious or subtle or ubiquitous or whatever you want to call it, okay? You don't have to get a teaching. We have to get comfortable with sometimes with falling. Hey, where's the solid ground? <laughs> okay. You might get attached to the falling ground. You might get attached to the notion of falling. Most of the time we want something solid. Okay. We don't like the feeling of falling. Nothing to hold on to, nowhere to stand. Huh? But if you tell a young child, if you make the mistake of telling a young child, you know, in a, as you walk out and you say, oh, the sun is sunrise. And, hey, did you know that geologically, in so many billions of years, that sun's going to explode and not be there anymore? And that's going to have big consequences on the planet Earth and so forth. You know, an adult could handle this. Young child goes out every morning and looks at the sun and says, Hey, is it still here? Okay. Has a different conception of time. You know, what does a billion years mean? You know, in the Buddhist literature, they have a kalpa. Kalpas upon kalpas, you know, as a, as a length of time measurement. And they say that one kalpa is the time it takes, it's, it's expressed. Poetically, I guess. And an angel comes. She's wearing a very light sort of a gown. And she sweeps her gown sleeve over this. That's a mile in diameter, solid rock, granite. And she comes by every, okay, I don't know. I, I'm making this up. But it, you get the idea. Every 10,000 years, she comes by and she sweeps her very light lace-like cloth on her gown over part of the side of the this huge hard rock every 10,000 years. And the kalpa is how much time it takes for her to wear out and wear down this huge mile-in-diameter granite hard rock to nothing. So it's a pretty long time. If you go to a national park, say like Grand Canyon or something, and, the, and you listen to a lecture by the forest ranger, and they talk about 
sometimes they get a little string in this and they'll <laughs> maybe it's 100 feet long string and they pull it out and somebody holds the other end and she says well <clears throat> you know this is about how long it'll take for this these mountains to mountains are changing <laughs> We know this. We can't put our mind around it, really, where we say, where you're standing now was an ancient seabed. These mountains rose up. Okay, you're talking about geologic time. So when they pull that string, they'll say, you know, it's 100 feet long, and she looks at the first inch, and she says, oh, that's our civilization. Okay. You know, how long man's been around. But and you, you get to see with your eyes, you know, that difference. Trying to somehow get a sense, a, a real sense of time. Otherwise, we don't know what a billion years is. Uh, and when the past and present collide, and we have this what might be called the present moment, uh, you know, the past is gone, future is not yet to be, you know, the eternal now. And so, of course, as soon as we say that, then that one's gone. Okay, <laughs> the next one, the next one. Okay. Uh, then, if you get onto this topic, you know what's right around the corner? Human mortality. Oh, I shouldn't say human mortality. My own, yours, the individual. Okay. Sometimes they say humans are the only one, only living beings that can imagine or visualize his own mortality, you know. Well, I don't know if that's good or bad, but we got to deal with what's going on, okay? And so religion's born, and, you know, how do you live a creative, meaningful life? Well, I look in the Buddhist literature, and I know two phrases one is no death as such, only one eternal change. I could sort of understand that, but you know, when we talk about fast, slow, you talk about death, hyphen, life. Okay. Pretty hard to see how one interpenetrates the other. All we know is I'm alive now. And I could imagine that I'm, that's going to change. And it's going to be a big change okay. that humans call death. Boy, or how about immortality is hidden in transiency. Those two statements I came across in Buddhist literature. And I could, you know, they're like koans. They're like riddles. They're like kind of a puzzle that's challenging us. Huh? So what does that mean? I think that's a good question. <laughs> hey, that's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going. And then you'll have a beautiful day. Thank you.